listeners and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast and I'm your host Natalie Freeman. Today we're so excited to welcome David Leo Rice to read from his debut story collection Drifter and after that he'll be in conversation with Matthew Spellberg. Before I introduce them I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing. We're open from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. We ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit us. We are also offering online ordering through our beautiful newly designed website, which you can find at www.skylightbooks.com. And now to introduce you to our guests. David Leo Rice is the author of the novels A Room in Dodge City, A Room in Dodge City Volume 2, Angel House, and The New House coming in 2022. Drifter, published this June, is his debut story collection, and you can find him online at www.raviddice.com. He'll be in conversation with Matthew Spellberg, a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows and faculty at Outer Coast College in Sitka, Alaska. He writes for many venues on indigenous languages, outsider artists, European literature, and the history of dreaming. Welcome, David and Matthew. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. So, uh, David, did you want to start us off with a little reading from Drifter? Sounds great. Uh, Yeah, so I'm just going to read a very short story from kind of towards the end of the book called Jello that I think it's actually the first time I've read it in any uh, public type of setting. Uh, So it should be cool. All right, Jello, it's only a couple pages. Jay's parents tell him never to go in the basement because there's something wrong with the foundation of our house. And if we ever went down there, we'd have to find out what it is. So for the first seven years of his life, he doesn't. He does what they tell him to, let go to school and carry the trash out to the curb and only watch one movie on a Saturday night and brush his baby teeth because even though they're going to fall out, his gums hopefully aren't. He doesn't like it, but he does it. He wonders sometimes what's down there and if finding out might actually make his life better, not worse. But until he's eight, he resists taking any action. Maybe, he thinks, the life I'm living is the best one, if not the only. So he keeps going to school where they talk about the Roman Empire and planets and paramecium and pi, but these seem to be just words or at best pictures, diagrams, maps, etc. Nothing that can do anything. He starts to get sad. He has friends, sure, at least a couple, and they play in the sandbox with trucks and shovels when they're little and watch the Lion King when they're a bit bigger and the Dark Knight when they're a bit bigger than that. And they eat pizza and Oreos and play laser tag on each other's birthdays, but still the sadness grows. He lies in bed and looks out his window at the factory up the street, belching smoke, and he watches the garbage truck chug by in the early morning, knocking over the cans, and he feels the sadness drip down from the ceiling and in from the walls, covering him up like a second quilt when the first one is already too hot. And underneath it all, at the very bottom of the house, he can feel something yawning, its burpy breath trickling through the kitchen, up the stairs, along the hallway, under his bedroom door, and into his bed. Something's waiting, he thinks, lying very still, unsure if he's dreaming. Something knows I'm up here and is waiting for me to come down. By the time he's almost eight, the dream has developed a new phase. 
He doesn't tell his parents or anyone at school or even himself really, not when he's awake, but it keeps coming like it doesn't need his permission. Like it has as much right to live in his brain as the rest of him does. In the dream, the basement door won't stay closed and the house starts to fill with thick, wet fumes like lettuce and meat left out in a pile. He gags in his sleep and spits onto his pillow, trying and failing to get the smell out of his nose and mouth until he finds himself walking down the stairs, tiptoeing in case whatever's in the basement can hear him. And then he's opening the fridge, rummaging for something to mask the smell until he finds a metal bowl of leftover cherry jello covered in crinkly plastic wrap. He takes it out, wobbling in his arms, peels off the plastic and throws it into the basement. It lands with a loud splat, much louder in the dream, he thinks, than it would be in real life, though he knows the dream is real too. It echoes through the whole house, so loud he's afraid it'll wake his parents, but it doesn't. Instead, it makes him feel like he's in a house by himself in a world without parents or teachers or rules, just him and the thing in the basement, if it's alive under the jello. As time moves on and his eighth birthday comes and goes, he finds he's having the dream more often. And now, looking forward to it, he begins to find the nights when it doesn't come unbearable. Long, still, boring nights where he rolls in his sheets, looking ahead to the coming years and decades, the tests in school, the five paragraph essays, the work of applying to college and going to college and getting a job and finding a house of his own on another street near a factory with a garbage truck that wakes you up as it knocks the cans under the curb at dawn. No, he thinks, the cherry jello nights are better. So he starts asking his mom to get more, to get it every time she goes shopping. Sometimes she does, but sometimes she forgets. So he starts coming to the store with her, every time asking her to get cherry jello, simply saying it's his favorite if she asks why, which eventually she stops doing. She just gets it and makes it for dessert because she says, me and your father are a little concerned, but we want you to be happy within reason. So she buys it and makes it. And then she and his father sit back and watch while he eats a little as little as possible, claiming he's saving the rest for his midnight snack, which she and his father say is a bit closer to being beyond reason, but is still okay as long as it's not every night. But it is every night. By the time he turns nine, the basement is so full of jello it almost reaches the top of the stairs, like the water level in an in-ground pool. He wonders if his parents know it's there and decides that they must, but what can they say, really? Nothing, he thinks, as he decides that tonight's the night. He has dinner with his parents, listening to, <clears throat> to them discuss Mr. Veach, his dad's boss at work, who has halitosis and gave himself another bonus instead of fixing the damn copier. And he watches his mom make what she doesn't know is her last batch of cherry jello. He eats a couple of tiny spoonfuls as ever and watches her cover the rest with plastic wrap and go to bed. And he goes to bed too, though he's too excited to lie still. As soon as he's sure both parents are asleep, he gets up, puts on his bathing suit, kisses his plastic allosaurus goodbye and heads down to the basement to find out if the jello is deep enough. He's seen in the dream that he needs to take a deep dive, otherwise he won't make it through the passageway. It'll be too dry and narrow and he'll bang his head on the cement and maybe die. So at the top of the stairs, he gets out the bowl of jello, peels off the plastic and hurls it onto the pile, listening for the splat. As soon as it comes, he takes a deep breath, puffs up his chest and throws himself in, breaking the surface like a torpedo. He speeds downward, sucking Jello in through his nose and swallowing it effortlessly, like this is the one true skill he's been learning all his life. It doesn't fill him up, it doesn't make him sick, it just makes him stronger, helping him fight his way down past the suspended bicycles and barbells and boxes of papers, all the basement trash hovering between him and the crack in the bottom, swallowing more and more. 
He cuts through the jello with the sides of his hands and forearms, pulling himself downward through the dark red toward a glowing seam far below. As he approaches, it stretches open, glowing reddish pink, and he knows the jello is working. He knows it's doing its job. He closes his eyes, takes another deep breath, which serves to fill his lungs with cherry, and goes through. It sucks him in, spins him around, and for a moment he blacks out. Everything becomes distorted and hot, and he forgets his name and where he came from and why he's here. The cherry smell is gone, though the redness remains. He swims deeper, pushing his way through the murk, determined simply to keep moving. Time slows down or speeds up or ceases to apply. Perhaps he considers years are passing. Perhaps I'll be old when I get out of here, if I ever do. Swimming along once he's gotten used to this new place and let go of any effort to determine what it is, he comes to an area with a number of hovering beasts. Horses, cows, eagles, parrots, and other mammals and birds hover in reddish aspect, kicking their legs and scrabbling their wings, trying to break free, but not trying that hard. They look worn out, confused, resigned. Some are completely still, hanging in place with their tongues out, their eyes filmy and gray. He looks at these creatures and begins to get scared. This isn't normal, he thinks. This isn't right. Whatever's happening to them, I can't let it happen to me. And it wants to happen. The jello wants to slow me down. It wants to hold on to me. It wants to make me a morsel in its giant sloppy gut. He swims harder, aware that his energy is limited, but determined to get out of here before he gets sick. His stomach hurts now and he can't swallow anymore, so he has to spit as he swims, pulling it past him with his eyes squinting just enough to see a bluish light in the far distance. Good, he thinks, anything other than red. Now he's passing people suspended around him, old people mostly, their hair white and their skin wrinkled and loose, but some young people too, fat ones and ones with angry, envious eyes staring at him as he swims past. He picks up the pace even though it exhausts him, forcing his way toward the blue light, which shimmers brighter the closer he comes. He starts to wonder as he gets near it about what it might mean to leave the jello behind, about whether the blue is where he was going all along or if it's actually back where he started. But it's too late now, he's almost there. Maybe he finds himself thinking, his voice familiar in his head now, all those horses and crows back there, maybe they all got part way towards something, toward whatever it was that I too am trying to reach, but then they just, he doesn't bother completing the thought. He doesn't have time. Now he's surfacing, first his head, then his chest, then his waist. His feet are planted firmly in the sand, and he's striding out of the surf, panting, spitting ropes of snot, coughing into his fist as he scans the beach, which is full of families. Umbrellas, carts, screaming babies, flying frisbees, and behind it all, a row of cars parked in the sun. After he catches his breath, he begins walking along the beach, glancing at the families, wondering which one is his. And if none of them are, he thinks, unsure if this notion is strange, I'll just pick one. Doesn't matter which, just any family that seems to have space on its blanket. As he's walking, looking at one set of faces and then another and then the one after that, he feels a hand on his shoulder, clamping down. He spins around to see a tall, thin boy in board shorts and an attempt at a mustache. Yo, Mike, the boy says, I was looking for you. Want to get some food? Mom gave us cash. He waves a 20 in the air and grins. Following this older boy, uh, his brother seemingly, up the beach, the person whose name is now Mike feels the memory of Jello in the basement in the cracks slipping as his mind fills with questions of hamburger or hot dog, curly fries or sweet potato, regular Coke or diet. By the time his turn to order comes, he's made up his mind. Thank you, David, so much for that reading. It's always a pleasure to hear your stories and your voice. David, you and I have known each other for about 15 years now, and I've had the 
pleasure and privilege of reading many of these stories, both in draft form and when they first came out, and now again, uh, as they've been collected into this book that represents about 10 years of work for you. And I wrote a short introduction for it and I had a chance to think a lot about the stories as a result. And what I wanna ask you about to begin with is just to walk us through the boundaries of the universe of your stories. We started with this story, you and I agreed to have you read this story because it's a story that starts in childhood, but you have a world that begins in childhood and stories of people like this boy who turns into Mike, who's living in this house with a living pool of jello underneath it. And you build up into a whole set of relations and experiences having to do with many different ages of life and experience and places in the world. And I wonder if you could just walk us through that, um, that kind of geography and the time span of your, of your fictional world. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and thank you for the really amazing introduction to this volume, which is like, was a thrill to read and, and to reread today. And yeah, it's wonderful. Um, I tend to think, you know, the idea of it being called Drifter and involving you know, individual drifters in each story, like, like in this one we just heard, but then also on a more meta level or macro level being about drift between different zones in the world. You know, so that almost the reader becomes the drifter working their way through this book. Uh, and I think those different zones you know, map onto real geography, but always fraught or, or questionable or, or sort of rendered strange in some ways, like a kind of a netherworld or a twilight zone that is basically recognizable places, but then has certain meanings that develop over the course of the book and, and hopefully over the course of other books also. You know, so Jello, the story that we just heard is kind of my East Coast world, right? So it's, you know, I'm from the East Coast. And it's the world of childhood. So it's like the small town, the site. It's almost the, the departure point of drifters in my imagination. So it's the place where people come from, but can't stay in and, and feel torn about that. You know, it's the place of exciting departure of somebody, you know, leaving town to seek their place in the world. But then also of melancholy of the sense that you know, like in Jello, something's already wrong with the world, or there's some reason why, you know, the journey out of town has an ominous quality to it because of something about the town itself rather than something that went wrong along the way. You know, it's like a kind of original set. So, you know, that's the East Coast world, which I think maps onto small towns and childhood. Then geographically and existentially, the journey heads westward. So these, you know, Western towns, you know, my other more novel work involves a kind of fantasy version of Dodge City, right? I have these room in Dodge City books that are, take place in, in a kind of psychoverse version of the actual Dodge City in Kansas, you know, so that's a kind of wild west world that we also visit in Drifter through other of the characters who may as well be Dodge City characters, even though they're in other stories. So I think that's the place of lost childhood. You know, so the Western towns, like the boom towns and the oil towns and the kind of movie towns are places without roots or, or places where people have gone to obscure and escape their roots, you know, and places of people under assumed names or sort of places where the, the drifters are, maybe think they're 
they think it's a stop along the way, but maybe a place where they end up. You know, so it's kind of the opposite of the the problem is the opposite of the East Coast in that rather than being too rooted, it's maybe not rooted enough. And then the last of these three realms that the stories move among is actually a reversion to the old world, I mean, back to Europe. You know, so there's a lot of stories in the Black Forest or other parts of Germany or Switzerland, or there's one story that goes all the way to Japan in this in this collection. Um, and I think those places are at least from a kind of warped American point of view, are always like a failed attempt to find the deeper, the deepest deep roots, you know, even older than the East Coast. And for that reason, the journey becomes even more bizarre and, and nightmarish in, in those geographical and narrative realms. Yeah, so, so your story world has three zones that kind of map onto three uh, stages in life, childhood and this East Coast world, a kind of angry adolescence and the Wild West, and then this kind of uh, strange mythical sort of senescence growing older, but also sort of sometimes regressing into a cyclical rebirth in the old world, in Europe or in Japan or in countries far away from the United States. Um, and I want to with the rest of this conversation, I want to kind of unpack that because it's like this huge uh, world that you've created that's uh, like, you know, some of these amazing fictional worlds of the 20th century, like Macondo uh, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez or the Open of Tafua County by, by William Faulkner. And so I want to just kind of move part by part and unpack that that reality that your stories are kind of reaching for. So to start with childhood, um, you grew up in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I think that's a really important fact for uh, anyone reading your fiction. Can you just tell us a little bit about how Northampton fits into your vision of a fictional world? Certainly, and I'm back in Northampton now, so it's it's especially fitting. Um, I mean, I think there's a few layers of it that I became conscious of at successive stages of my own childhood and adolescence as my own interest in, in writing and, and like desire to pursue that was also taking shape. You know, so I think on the one hand, it is pretty deep in the woods. I mean, it's a small town, pretty far from Boston, you know, I mean, deep into the wilderness of Massachusetts, closer to Vermont or, or New York state. Uh, you know, so I think I was very both intrigued by and frightened of the sense of the deep woods. You know, so reading like the, and actually this will relate back to the German folklore too, of like reading the, you know, grim fairy tales as a child was not hard for me to picture them happening here. You know what I mean? So like that, that's one aspect. But then also Northampton has, you know, a number of colleges and universities around and a lot of influx, somewhat from Boston, but much more from New York. So it kind of is... You know, in, in my book, Angel House, we, there's this phrase called the town's city, which is a kind of like impossible geography of a city contained within the small town. Um, but that was the experience of growing up. You know, growing up here in the 90s, it was like, you know, Sonic Youth was here and the Pixies were here and the creators of the Ninja Turtles were here. And it, it was this very hip kind of, you know, mini Seattle kind of vibe that I became aware of when I was really young. And, and so in a way, my sense of like what it would be to be like a cool 20 something adult, like living in an apartment, you know, in the big city was literally the apartments in downtown Northampton, such that when I finally moved to New York, you know, in my twenties, that was almost a letdown. Like it felt less urban 
than my vision of urbanity, which was formed in Northampton. You know, so I think that it's not exactly a contradiction, but the sort of impossible collision of feeling like you're in the middle of the woods and you're in like a super New York City uh, fused together into a worldview that, that I've used for everything, you know, and it feels like a very uh, fertile ground to just continually set stories in. I think especially because when I was a teenager, my vision of the larger world and therefore my vision of the kinds of stories that I would want to write to participate in the larger world was always set here because that's where I was. So in a sense, now I'm in the opposite position of living in New York, but uh, continually cultivating this kind of Northampton of, of the mind, which to me feels like it can be the setting for almost anything. One of the just best things about being your friend is getting to go to Northampton with you and just walk down Main Street and have you just like recreate all of the kind of mythical geography of your childhood and be like, oh, yeah, and this is the place where like I wasn't allowed to go into. And like, I just thought that there must have been some like monster living there. And this is like a place where this crazy old lady lived. And like, this was the like apartment on Main Street that I really wanted to live in. And like, this is the like Moroccan restaurant where I worked in the kitchen. And like, this happened and that happened. And there was this kind of thing. And uh, there's just so much like joy and, and, and passion for your hometown. Um, you know, your experience, I think, is um, not like a lot of people who leave their hometown to move to the big city where they kind of hate their hometown or they denounce their hometown. You seem to just totally love Northampton. Um, paradoxically, in your stories, like all these little towns are just like gruesome. They're just full of um, violence and bloodshed and uh, people drowning in like monstrous aspects full of like, you know, paralyzed animals. So how do you reconcile these two things like your passion and love for the small town and your sense that it's just full of horror i wonder if it's that the small town in my experience is the place where you can confront that horror with a sense of joy and maybe that's my relation to you know using horror as a fictional mode also which is that it's not about discounting it or, or treating it as trivial, but it's about having a certain approach in which you can take it seriously, but also experience a kind of dark pleasure in that. Whereas maybe if I were, if I felt that I only had the city or if, or if I felt, you know, the description that, that you said before that I had left, that I had renounced the town upon moving to the city, uh, maybe I would feel the horror more not more immediately, but I would feel more defenseless against it. You know, so maybe like for me, setting certain horrors in this place where I otherwise feel extremely comfortable is an approach to giving it its due. You know, I mean, not, not pushing it away, but like contextualizing it in a way that I can work with it rather than just be like completely overwhelmed by it and therefore kind of rendered, rendered paralyzed by it. Yeah, I think that has to do with a really important theme in your work, too, where you, you explore these kind of huge systems of horror that we've all fallen into in whatever you want to call it, modernity or the present, and the kind of total uh, powerlessness that people feel in front of those systems and the way in which um, people's, I don't know how to put it, like people's avoiding of confronting violence or people's denying that there's horror out there is kind of a way of falling prey to the system. So like, I'm just, I'm thinking of 
like uh, there are lots of characters in your stories who just uh, seem to be kind of going about their business, uh, editing like e-newsletters or like, um, you know, trying to like uh, fussily or put together like some kind of movie or like just very uh, kind of kind of behaving in very selfish ways. Like you have you, you have a kind of whole carnival of like these sort of selfish, like busybody characters living in like enclosed spaces in their own sort of fantasies. And one thing that happens is that like the stories often zoom out to show that these characters are like not at all in control of anything. And they're totally trapped in this like um, larger system that's only visible to people who are willing to like rip open their own insides and like impregnate themselves or do some other kind of like grotesque bodily thing, make a kind of grotesque bodily intervention in the world. And it's like, that seems to be for you the only way that people can get out of just the kind of um, prison of being in these huge systems that you can't really have any agency in. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's another way that, you know, as, as a writer and my hope for a reader is to be that kind of meta drifter, that you're the one who has the broader perspective, you know, that the characters are often in, like you said, these kind of small and, and very like inward turn circles either literally because they're just trapped in the towns where they are or because of some uh, avoidance goal or, or mechanism in their personalities. You know, I mean, one, one thing I was thinking about today is that I think a lot of the characters in here and probably in, in all of my, my writing are not quite alive. Like they exist in a sort of undead state or there's something about them that isn't activated yet you know, and there may be no escape from that, but they kind of know it, you know? So like part of the drama in the stories isn't that the characters are fully active, that they can just like pursue something or escape something or, or even like meaningfully succumb to something the way a character in a more like traditional horror story might. But I think the grace that they do have is an awareness that they're in this state of kind of half-life and therefore the question and, may, and maybe the drama of the story is whether there can be any good in that, right? I mean, the bad in it is kind of obvious that we would all hope for ourselves that we could be fully alive. But on this kind of more perverse level, I'm interested in the question of, you know, are the characters stuck in a half-life which actually gives them a, a glimpse through the cracks or through, you know, behind the back of the kind of systems that you were describing. So actually by being like almost zombies, there's something that they're able to become aware of whether or not they want to, that I think we, in our effort, our understandable effort to be fully alive, have to keep uh, pushing our awareness of away. And maybe that thing is just death, but, but maybe even within life, it's like these different systems that want us to remain within them. And, and that are therefore kind of spirals that keep deepening uh, your engagement in them the longer you stay in them, you know, and that the goal of art in some way is to, I don't think you necessarily can get out of them, but the goal of art is at least to give like a sudden glimpse of what the outside might look like or even what the system might look like so that at least, you know, for a moment, uh, you can become aware that it exists as such, that it isn't just reality. Yeah, and I think you you want in your work to 
talk about that process, not only in the life of individuals, but also in the way we think about history and about American history in particular, and maybe about world history, because it occurs to me that in the stories in this collection, you've got this kind of classic American immigrant story a little bit, like the arrival on the East Coast, then like going West, like go West young man and like maturing in the West. And then the stories kind of often end up and the sort of arc of the book kind of ends up back in the old country, in Europe, in Japan. And like, that's where some of the most kind of um, climactic stuff happens. And it's almost as if like the, the, the progress narrative of migration to the United States and so forth is actually revealed to be this huge cyclical loop that's just going back and back and back and back and it never goes forward. And the whole idea that it's based on progress or evolution or whatever is shown to be kind of a lie. And instead, uh, there's this kind of huge, like global system of people just like drifting from place to place. And as they drift, they're like pulling up everyone else's roots so that you've got this like big floating world. Um, you know, this kind of soup of jello, like in the jello story, where people are just kind of uh, passing from world to world to world and never able to anchor themselves. Totally. Yeah. And that it's, you know, they're post, the word like postmodern is, it already sounds old now, but like they're um, post American narrative, American narratives, you know, that that idea of that you could like start a new life either by coming to America or by going deeper into America, you know, heading West feels maybe not over, but like dubious now, you know, it feels questionable on, on a lot of levels. And so I think, you know, and I think these characters know that or always perceive it. So like you were saying, there's this larger loop that they're, that they've fallen into, that there's this kind of sense of reenactment and regression, you know, and people are continually just redoing the steps, almost like the stations of the cross or something. There's just like steps along this journey. They just keep going on. But every time they do it, it gets stranger, you know, because to reenact something isn't the same as enacting it. You know, so there's a sense of strangeness if you know you're going through steps that you've already gone through before. And to reenact something again is even stranger and so on and so on. So I think the sense of, you know, I don't know if the stories are surreal. And, you know, that also feels like a kind of old word but there's definitely a sense of this just like emergent strangeness that like people are going through these kind of classic arcs, but because it's too late or because like the conditions aren't there for those arcs to make sense, there's something ritualistic or fetishistic or cult-like about it that, that you know, I do just feel in the air. I mean, I think, you know, these stories were written throughout the 2010s. You know, so part of my like putting them together now has occasion to just looking back on that decade. And it does feel like a decade of like myriad, both legitimacy crises of people, you know, not being sure what history is, is true or what their history is or what the, whose history is, you know, being told by whom and so on. And then at least in these stories, a lot of like dark grifter kind of characters who are selling histories with, with, uh, you know, very sinister intent you know, and themselves aren't even sure of their own history. So, I mean, I think they're sympathetic characters to a degree and that they also are in this rootless jello state, but there's definitely a sense of something sinister happening in the stories too, of people, you know, offering each other a sense of certainty that can't really be grounded in anything except violence, perhaps. What do you, what do you think about the, 
stories as they appear in the kind of like moment of the pandemic? Like, what is it like to look back at these this 10 years of, of writing stories, particularly about people like on the move, drifting, changing places in a moment when we're all stuck in place? Although I guess some of us have, you know, started working remotely or like, you know, living in Airbnbs or whatever, but, but on the whole, like after having like written for 10 years about people just, um, you know, about borders just kind of disappearing and vanishing and people like having no ability to kind of anchor themselves in place. Like, what is it like to now think about a world where everyone is like forcibly anchored in place? Yeah, that, that's really interesting there. I mean, I wonder if in a way, I think you say this in the intro too, that like part of the conundrum of the drifters is that they're so free to move and, you know, borders vanish and, and everything like that. But also there's something stuck in place emotionally or, or like ontologically about them, you know, that there's some way that they, it's like they're trapped in a shell that they can't quite hatch from. Or, or sometimes I describe characters as like not really having been born yet, you know, that they're kind of in the world, but it's not really the world or like there's some emergence that they're still waiting for. So I wonder if during the pandemic, or at least in my experience, is kind of the opposite phenomenon that because you're trapped in place, or at least have, you know, even if you can go to Airbnb or something that like so many other places like are just deleted from the map, you know, the optimistic view on it is that it was a chance for some kind of inner growth, you know, or some, some way that like, I think at least early on, like in spring of 2020, you know, there was terror and, and fear, obviously, but also I feel like there was this real, almost like wild optimism that maybe some just like radical, or almost like inconceivable change was afoot. And now we almost have the opposite feeling that like the idea of it, you know, the absolute worst of like everyone dying has been averted. But at the same time, the idea that like any major like social or personal change will really happen also is seems to, you know, have, have evaporated, you know? So, so I feel like that idea of like, what will it take to finally be born? You know, and maybe it's just a human condition. I don't know that it's unique to this moment, but I think the pandemic uh, pressed on that wound in people's minds in a really interesting and, and kind of disturbing way. Yeah, it makes me think of the central story in this collection, The Hate Room, which is also out as a related chapbook. Uh, amazing, amazing story. And at the center of it is like an Airbnb, basically, in which people go to just disgorge their foulest, foulest hatreds, and hence the name, hate room. And the kind of central conflict of it is that there's these uh, these two lovers, these two boyfriends who run this hate Airbnb. And one of them is totally on board with using it to lure people to disgorge their hate and to run a business. And the other one is desperate for the hate room to be a like peace and tranquility and Zen room with like tea candles and just be a kind of space that represents his best self and he ends up being the like tragic figure in the story because he can't process he can't accept the like hatred that's sitting there in people's hearts uh and in people's literally in people's homes and in their rooms and in the spaces they make for themselves um and it's like something similar has happened in the pandemic where 
people sitting at home were like, oh, this will be my best self. This will be like a renaissance of sourdough baking and reading encyclopedia and learning the piano and so forth. Um, but in fact, what it's revealed is that uh, at least the way the world is now when we're left to just mirror ourselves, like all we manifest is festering frustration and, uh, and dissatisfaction. Yeah, no, and festering is literally a symptom of stasis. You know, something that's moving can't fester in the same way. Right. You know, which can be its own problem because you can feel you're always running away from something, right? But but the opposite problem is, is obviously what we saw this year of like something unresolved uh, rising to the surface without being any closer to being resolved. You know, I mean, I think that like the way I think about horror, certainly in these stories, is it's like something always appears that is palpable, but not any one thing. You know, so I don't think I would ever write like a monster story in a, in a classic way, you know, or a story about aliens or something like that. That kind of thing doesn't interest me as much because I think it's truer to life that, you know, some kind of bile or some kind of just unresolved rage or, or confusion or panic or fear comes to the surface and just exists as a natural condition of the world but doesn't really have a clear form, you know, which isn't yeah. to say that there aren't like actual villains in the world, but it's like the thing itself is always elusive. And that aspect of horror interests me a lot more, you know, so, so like everyone in the stories is a kind of stand-in. And, and maybe this is true of the towns also though, you know, like I've always been interested in towns that are movie sets. So it's like, it is a town that people are living in, but at the same time, it's also the set for the movie about life in that town. You know, so I think like those ideas of reenactment or the sense that, you know, you can never get to the original thing and therefore can never get to like the real thing uh, motivates the sense of like American anxiety. I mean, American optimism too, though, like there's, you know, I think we are constantly thinking life could be radically better, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think there's some aspect of that optimism that should be preserved, but it has this sinister undertone that it's like, because we can't ground ourselves in whatever we agree is the real, you know, everything is kind of ominous or like everything you kind of, you know, every face appears to be a mask or every uh, event seems like a ritual or, you know, it's like that type of energy appeals to me as a storyteller. And it's something that I'm always looking for in the world. And, and maybe actually, you know, back to what you were saying a while ago about uh, why do I, set really horrific events in a kind of mental version of Northampton, even though I have such a fondness for it and love for it, is exactly that. That to me, you know, maybe the only adaptation you can make to a world that's just haunted by strangeness like this is to try to celebrate that, you know, or to find some way of it you know, that that's beautiful. You know, it's like the idea that the beautiful thing is always out of reach. If you remain in that mindset, it'll just always be true. Like it will always be out of reach. But if you can find some interest in these kind of like, you know, degraded and seedy and second order versions of the world, which I think just is the state that the world is in at this point, you know, which isn't to say that you can't also try to improve things, but if you can find something of value in that and, and try to really work with that, you know, on the simplest level, it's like you can just appreciate the places you are more. You know what I mean? And you can sense that there is actually something kind of 
very not not just interesting but nourishing about this like sad carnival that that we seem to be living in yeah so that um that really makes me want to say something about the arc of your work as i've seen it develop over these last 15 years um what you just described seeing that incredible aesthetic energy in the like grotesque carnival of the world around us and really saying that art needs to go into that carnival in order to draw out something that's genuinely beautiful and that's genuinely capable of touching us. That's something, that's a kind of conviction that you've had as long as I've known you and probably much longer that has been at the very center of your work. Um, and it's beautiful to watch it develop and strengthen and just remain the kind of heartwood of your philosophy. One thing that has changed though is I think, uh, and it's something you can really see in these stories which have been collected over 10 years, is that your work has simultaneously become much more political. Like I think 10 or 12 years ago, you wouldn't have thought about yourself as a political writer. I think you might have even kind of said, I don't do politics at all. Uh, but there is a kind of message and it's not a, you know, vote for this person kind of message or, or, or even like an activist message, but there is a there is a kind of critique and a kind of um, even maybe a call to arms in your in your writing. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about what you think that is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is that over these past ten years, you know, I mean, part of it's just getting older, you know, and moving from a more student state or adolescent state into just being like a citizen and realizing that you are subject to the world in, in the way that everyone else is. I mean, that that's inevitable. But I think also, you know, over these past 10 years, what we call politics has like touched on the level of the mythic or the transcendental or the, you know, horrifying in a way that in my lifetime or our lifetime, it hadn't, at least not that we were cognizant of, you know, so that like it, it, uh, scooped something up into itself, you know, that felt like it was really deep in the, in the essence of the world, let's say, you know, you know, so I think it just like became impossible not to be interested, although interested is maybe too neutral a word, but not to be, uh, you know, activated by in some sense, you know, what it is, I think that, that that's really hard to say, you know, within the realm of fiction. But I think it's something like what we were saying earlier about this idea of like larger systems or larger forces uh, mediating somewhat freely between what we would consider the natural and what we would consider the supernatural, you know, or, or this idea of, you know, what could broadly be called like weird fiction or just a kind of weird or uncanny or, or, um, you know, spooky relation to reality becoming increasingly prevalent in the political realm or the political discourse. And, and also what that realm inspires in people. You know, that it's like, I'm certainly not alone in having been kind of like stirred up by these different movements over the past 10 years. You know, so like there's some symptom of this time that I don't want to say that I feel lucky, but that I feel glad that my like fictional interests seem able to express in a certain way. And, and, and maybe that's not a coincidence because the kind of, you know, film and the kind of literature that I grew up reading was of, you know, reading and watching was of the time that was also producing this moment culturally and politically, you know, so it's like there is some trajectory that we're all on from you know, us being born in the 80s and then coming of age in the 90s and 2000s and, you know, being <laughs> being here now. 
you know, that there's some some like gathering snowball of just influences and and intimations that we've taken with us and have formed whatever we've turned our attention to during that time. Uh, you, you know, on a more like sense of values within the stories, I think it's something like that of like how do you make people look up or, or almost like look out of the circle that they're turned in toward. That might be one way to put it. You know, that it's like all of the characters are on loop, you know, or, or, you know, like we've been talking about reenactment or carnivals or rituals or closed communities or communes. There's a lot of those types of situations and settings uh, within all these stories. And, and so maybe if there's a kind of, you know, political aspiration within it, it's just about making them look away from those cycles and therefore a realize that they are cycles and b realize that there's some like larger world out there you know and, and that it's not necessarily about like one particular intervention but i think like the largest like macro concept is just like how do you conceive of the future you know how do you get out of just like an endless cycle of fixating on the past or fixating on there not being a clear enough past. Like, how do you put those questions to rest and like actually collectively conceive of like a real future? You know, and, and also, I mean, related to that, I think a lot of these stories involve failed suicides or failed apocalypses. Even the story Jello, right? It's like he almost just leaves the world, but then actually he's just still in the world. You know, so I think that idea interests me a lot is like, how do you go on living? even in a moment where the dominant narrative is basically apocalyptic, you know, which is not to say the apocalypse isn't coming or hasn't come, depending on how people conceive of it, but rather how do you go on as long as the story goes on in a way that feels productive? And I think that's really the, the essence of, of what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, as we come to the close of this conversation, I wanna sort of ask just a final question about how that relates to lives of individual people and individual characters. And what I'm sort of getting from what you were just saying now is that you're trying to say, you're trying to make some argument about how individuals should have their own way of mediating between, to use your words, the natural and the supernatural. And that can be through dreams, that can be through visions, that can be through this kind of drifter state where you're uh, floating along the currents and whatever thing is coming at you comes at you with the force of revelation. But, you know, in a, in a world where people have lost belief, lost faith in a lot of the old systems for contacting the supernatural, um, it seems as though they've just sort of surrendered their ability to experience something higher to these larger organi organized systems of power to big corporations or to the internet or to the government, whatever you want to call it, to conspiracy theories. And like, it seems to me that one of the things that you're calling for here is people to establish their own way of mediating between these different realms or of tra traveling between these different realms and like reaching a kind of ecstasy and using that, bringing that to the, to the political table or to the building of a community rather than just accepting the kinds of um, higher value visions and ideas and so forth that are spoon fed to you by an algorithm or, or whoever. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's, you know, we're in this dangerous, but maybe also, I mean, maybe this is my American optimism, but also a 
potentially very transformative phase in that I think like maybe everyone, or at least most people, we feel like we're, you know, crabs without a shell, you know, that historically the shell was, you know, the established religions of the world, you know, small village life, family life, you know, these kind of much more ancient systems. And those, I don't know if people were happy, but those organized people in a way that made sense. And that for, you know, two or 300 years, we've been running this experiment of like, can we wind that down, but not replace it with anything? You know, can we just be individuals in the city who don't really believe in anything? You know, on the one hand, we're free, but on the other hand, we're kind of terrified. And I think we're reaching a point now where it's becoming clear to a lot of people that that maybe never worked, but certainly isn't working now. And the problem, I think, is that if you have no shell, really, you can't have no shell, because if you have no shell, something will come and put a shell on you, like a corporation or a conspiracy theory or a cult or a you know, scam of one kind or another, or just a sense of festering hatred against someone for some reason. You know, it's like you, if you think you don't have a shell, you'll grow the worst shell, or, you know, or someone else will put a shell on you that benefits them. So, so yeah, I think my sense of like a future facing aesthetics or a future facing, you know, hope and aspiration is can people actively choose a meaningful shell that does protect them and ground them and make sense of the world, but on their own terms, you know, it doesn't leave them naked and exposed on the one hand, doesn't force them back in time to those older forms that I think we've just are over. I mean, it's not the way we're organized now and doesn't leave them vulnerable to someone who wants to take advantage of that shelllessness. You know, so, so that that's the exact question. I th and I think is it good point to have arrived at is like these drifters are almost, you know, are cautionary tales of people drifting without a shell, but are also aspirational tales of people who are genuinely seeking a kind of illumination outside of whatever's just like standard and, and on offer from, you know, from on high, which are, are never good options, I think. David, thank you so much for using horror as a tool for making an argument about the need for people to be, to have a strong sense of the self and at the same time, a sense of something actually bigger than the self that doesn't compromise it or cause it to disappear or shrink. Um, it's, a, uh, it's an exciting and unexpected and new way to force open uh, a genre and to um, bring philosophy into fiction. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for helping me think through it to see it in those terms. I mean, that, that, that's, uh, that's wonderful and fantastic. Yeah, and it's been great to have this ongoing conversation over so many years and to, to bring it to this venue now. It's been, it's been great. And we at Skylight were so grateful to have you both here to talk about Drifter. I did have one more question for you, David. I know that there is both a summer and a winter edition of this book. And I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the decision to do two separate covers and if they have a special meaning, which I'm sure they do. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, they, so it was designed and published by um, 1111 Press in Minneapolis. Uh, who are doing great both textual and, and visual work. I think it really came initially just out of development of, of different cover ideas. I mean, we sort of I'm trying to remember if there was a point where they bifurcated, but 
somewhere along the way, we ended up with a mock-up of both, you know, and we were trying to decide. And then, you know, we just had the thought of like, what if we develop each one into a kind of final draft and then just have both. And, you know, the stories in the book are more or less evenly split between summer and winter modes. And, and actually, you know, to tie it back to Northampton too, it's such a split environment in that the winters are so deep and dark and so heavily snowy and the summers are actually like super lush like kind of insanely overgrown even more than other parts of new england because of the way that the connecticut river cuts through and then there are pretty high mountains around it so it creates this like steam zone so i, I was actually talking to another writer from northampton about faulkner and i told him that you know when i whenever i read faulkner and picture mississippi I picture it as Northampton. And he was like, oh my God, so do I. Like, so I, I think that's not so uncommon, actually. Uh, so I don't know. I, I mean, I wanted the collection as a, you know, as an object, as as something whose design reflected its contents to get at both of those aspects. And also we just thought it would be a fun way to engage with people about it. And you know, we had a pre-order contest to see which one had the most pre-orders and then the one that had the most which ended up being summer became or has become the standard edition whereas winter is now the limited edition um, which in a way seems like a win-win because it makes winter you know more special but then summer more available so i, I don't know I, I think that was a nice way to do it great thank you so much for sharing that fun story with us i when i was getting ready to order our copies for skylight i saw that there were both and so i was curious um, I think we ordered a few of both, so hopefully Fantastic. we'll have some limited edition winter uh, there for our Skylight customers. Thank the, you. The again. winter one is kind of the winter one is kind of like a jewel. It's like this little diamond. It's, it uh, is, and the cover I I like the winter cover. It's uh, it looks more mysterious. Mm -hmm. It's all mm -hmm. kind of cloudy. You want to see what's underneath, but then to compare them side by side and get to look at what's kind of hiding under that cloud cover a little bit. It's a fun little, like, I spy game. <laughs> totally, yeah. And, and maybe gets at that sense about the world that, like, there's no matter what you see, there's always something hidden behind it. Definitely. Well, yeah. thank you again to David for sharing Drifter with us today. And Matthew, thank you for the thoughtful and generous conversation. Today's guests, once again, were David Leo Rice and Matthew Spellberg. You can order David's debut story collection, Drifter, at www.skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.